Everybody said, praise the Lord. Why don't we do that? We often use that as a greeting. But you know, when the Hebrews say hallelujah, it's not just a praise that we give, but it's a command for the people to praise the Lord, to bless the name of the Lord. So let's just lift our hands across this building and, and worship him and magnify him and give thanks to him. Could we do that? Lord, you're great and you're greatly to, to be praised, Lord. You're mighty and matchless and there's none like you and there's none beside you. You're a just God and you are our savior. You're the one that redeemed us. You're the one that called us by name and said that we are yours. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege to come and gather in your presence tonight. We thank you for the presence of God that we've already felt, that when we begin to magnify your name in song, Lord, your presence descended into this place. And God, I feel you here. And Lord, I know your people feel you here. And Lord, it's a, it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a substance that we have, Jesus, that this world does not have. Lord, your presence is greater than anything. Thank you, Father, for your mighty presence, your mighty name, your matchless name. Somebody say the name. Jesus. Jesus. There is no name like it. Amen. There's none like him. There's none beside him. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Somebody say that name one more time. Jesus', Jesus name. I know we've kind of prayed a little bit, but I want to pray again if that's all right. We just do that. I want to pray for the word to go forth. I want our hearts to be made tender to what the Lord desires to do. He's, he's been tenderizing and he's been working already. But, you know, sometimes we just get a little hardness of heart. And it takes a little bit of time for the spirit to begin to work and kind of move rocks out of the place of those grounds that need to be penetrated by the word. So, Father, by the authority of the name of Jesus and by the power of your word, Lord, I take dominion over everything that tries to hinder the word from going forth and penetrating every darkness. Lord, your word is light. Your word is truth. And Lord, we're going to declare truth tonight and we're going to believe it. Your word says it. We believe it, Lord. There is no word like your word. It's infallible. It won't return void. And Jesus, where our opinions are not like your word, help us to align our thoughts with your word. Where we get rubbed the wrong way, your word's a two-edged sword. And where that word begins to cut against us, Lord, let us get in alignment with that word. Help me to deliver it with humility and meekness tonight, Jesus, but help somebody else to receive it the same. We ask you in the name of Jesus, and everybody say amen. 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 Go ahead, and you can be seated. Thank you, ushers, for passing out clipboards and pens. Everybody say deeper. deeper. Say, I want to go deeper. It's time to get out of the shallows, amen. It's time to swim in deeper waters. I know our, our clipboards there begin with Hebrews 12 and 14, and, and we'll revisit that in just a moment. But what I want to first begin with is, if you could, Brother Gary, or media, could you help me with 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8, please? Is it okay tonight if we just take our time? We're going to sit down and not have fast food. We're going to have a, a good meal together. We're seated together in heavenly places, and we're going to eat the bread of life. Everybody say 1 Thessalonians 4.7. Here we go. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. 
And I'll just tell you from my experience, I wasn't raised in this truth. I wasn't, I was raised what I thought to be a Christian. I never went to church except for with my grandma, maybe a couple of times every few years. But this truth that we declare here, I believe is the fullest revelation of any denomination, basically, if you will, that's declared. Amen. There are others that preach Acts 2.38. There are others that preach John 3.3, 3, John 3.5. There are others that preach Deuteronomy 6 and 4. But most stop there. And what we're going to talk about tonight is foreign to them because they're still of this world in many aspects. But God has called us out of this world. Amen? And so this, this verse, if you could, could you please put it back up there for me? So what happened in my experience is I believed in one God when I did come to truth. I believed in baptism in Jesus' name, and I was baptized that way. And I received the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues as his spirit gave the utterance. And let's go to verse 8, Sister Christina. But what happened was when people would declare holiness preaching or teaching, separation and so on and so forth, I would kind of get, the, I prayed it. The Bible says that the word is two-edged, Amen. What that means is it'll cut for you or against you. Where you're in agreement with it, it's going to go with you. But where you don't agree with the word, it's going to go against your grain. And that's our job to fall in line with what the word says. But when that word would begin to be preached, it would cut against me. It would go against my grain. And I get mad at the man preaching it. So often that's what we do when we don't view the word the right way. We get a problem with the man declaring that word. So he despised that man, but, it's, but look at what the word says. It says you're not despising the man, you're despising God because God gave you the Holy Ghost. He didn't give you the unholy ghost. So, and I, I want to, Bishop, help me. I want to I deliver this with a right spirit and a right heart. So pray for me, please. But, but, I, but I know what it's like to get mad at the person that declares the truth because you don't agree with it. You say, oh, well, that's just a man-made doctrine, but it's not tonight. I hope that when we get done, you see that it's not man-made. It's from the Word of God. Amen? Amen? And so God did give us the Holy Ghost, and he does call us to cleanness, not uncleanness. He calls us to come out from the world and come out and separate ourselves. And so, so if, if you would, raise your hand if you've been born again of water and of spirit. Baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues. Praise the Lord. But when you did that, you were a baby. That's the new birth. You, you broke the matrix for the womb, and you were born into the spiritual realm, out of the carnal realm of this world. And this is what it says, that the new birth is only the initial experience of salvation. That's the initiation, brother text, into the kingdom of God. But the work of salvation doesn't end there. But what happens is we get paralyzed at the new birth and get halt and stop there because that's as far as we want to go. That's why Jesus said you're going to see the kingdom, but you won't enter the kingdom. When you see the kingdom, when you're baptized in his name and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you see what the kingdom requires and you say, I don't want to enter there. So in biblical terms... Salvation refers to the deliverance or liberation from the power and effects of sin. We were all born in sin. We were all shapen in iniquity. 
So that's what we were born into. We've got to be born out of that. So salvation, I've heard, I've heard it put like this, that salvation is like a rubber band. It's very elastic. And so salvation has past, salvation has present, and salvation has future aspects. So when you were born again of water and spirit, you could say that at that moment in time, you were saved. You were. If you would have died a second later, there would have been no doubt as to your salvation. You would have gone on to your reward. And probably for many of us, that might have been better. Because when you were born again, you still struggle. Amen. It's not an end all be all to your struggles in this world. Because in this life, you will have trial. You will have tribulations. So it has past, present, and future aspects. You were saved when you were born again. When you, re when you repented and you believed the gospel. And everybody say, when I believed, I obeyed. Faith without works is dead. However long ago that was, that day, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, five days ago, you were saved. You were saved from the sin's control and you got power to live for God, amen, when you got the Holy Ghost. So his death, Jesus' death purchased past salvation from sin, but right now his life provides present victory over sin. We can also say that right now, everybody say right now. right now. Right now, I enjoy present salvation, but here's an if. If I continue in his word and allow his spirit to lead me, they that are led by the spirit are the sons of God. In its ultimate sense, though, in its final sense, we have not yet achieved final salvation as we still have a mortal body. You still have a sinful nature, as we talked about the last time, that's working inside of you still. You still have temptation. You still possess the ability to sin. And your salvation will only be complete on that day when you receive a glorified, immortal body like Jesus did when he was resurrected. But until then, our salvation is still very much futuristic. So, but God calls the Christian to a continued life of holiness. So it's imperative for the born-again believer to experience the continuing work of sanctification, which comes by daily submission to the leadership and control of the Holy Ghost. Just as we must be born again to see the kingdom, Hebrews 12 and 14 says we also must follow holiness in order to see him. The NIV says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that, again, is kind of twofold, because if I'm not holy, I'm not going to get to see him. But since we are his representatives in this earth, if I'm not holy, they're also not going to see him. The American Standard Version says, follow after peace with all men and the sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. So that new birth that you experienced, unless a born-again believer continues to walk by faith and live after that new nature of the Spirit, will have no eternal value. And we have to allow God to complete the work of salvation that began at the new birth. Newborn babies make a lot of messes. Matter of fact, that's all they do. <laughs> that's all they do. 
So there ought to be some mess around the house of God. Amen. But there also be, ought to be some people that are maturing, that are learning to crawl, learning to walk, learning to move from milk and formula onto chewable meat. Amen. Matter of fact, that's what a healthy church looks like. A healthy family has babies. Everybody say, God is holy. Thank y'all for singing that. Y'all just played right in. It's great. God is holy. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy. They don't say omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent. They don't sing omnipresent, omnipresent, omnipresent. They sing about one of his attributes and one alone. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is God's essential attribute. Everything God is flows from his holiness. His love comes from holiness. His grace comes from holiness. But without that holiness, we're not going to see him. In respect to God, holiness means absolute purity and moral perfection. But with respect to us, holiness means conformity to the character of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 that we must be holy because God is holy. And again, he gave us the Holy Ghost to be holy. It means thinking as God thinks, loving what God loves, hating what God hates, and acting as Christ would act. Specifically, holiness consists of two components. Separation. Separation from the world, sin, and worldliness. But it also means dedication to, to God and his will. That's why it always says, come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch the unclean thing and then I will receive you. There's always a coming away, a leaving and a cleaving. Just like when a husband and a wife get married, he has to leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. We are to leave the ways of this world and cleave to God's ways. It's throughout the word of God. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 6, 17, 18, and then 7 and 1 says. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. And then it says this, I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And then 7 and 1 says, Having therefore these promises, what promises that I'll receive you? Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Everybody say flesh. flesh. Spirit. spirit. That's what we are. You can see the flesh, you can't see the spirit. It, it's... 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel was getting sent to anoint King David in the place of King Saul, and, you know, as Samuel was just like we are, amen, Samuel's a man, but God was telling Samuel, Samuel, when you go to anoint this king, because Saul was goodly, a choice young man, and 
head and shoulders above everybody else, which means he looked strong, he looked good, he looked fit to be king. But God was telling Samuel, this time when you go to anoint this king, don't look on him like a man looks on him. Because David, it says, was young and ruddy and basically the run of the litter. But he says, don't look on it. He says, look, God looks on the heart is what God told Samuel. Man looks on the appearance, but God looks on the heart. And I've heard people say, well, see, there you go right there. It says God looks on the heart. And that is true. But man still looks on the appearance. That's why it's important not to look like everybody else because that's the only way. Because a man can't see your heart. God does, but, but a man can't. But a man can see how you conduct yourself and react and respond and dress. Amen. <laughs> Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. I can see my body. Amen. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And then when you've done that, you've only done what's reasonable. You can't pat yourself on the back for doing it. You've done nothing great. You've only done what's reasonable. The Bible calls us unprofitable servants, that we've only done what was expected of us to do. And then he says, be not conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Ephesians 4, 22, 24 says that you put off. And here's that whole exchange again that happens of putting away something and taking something else. It says put off your former conduct. That old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Then he says be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then now you've put off your old self and you've put on a new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So this is what holiness means. Holiness means we cannot love this ungodly world system. You can't identify with it. You can't become attached to the things in it, and you can't participate in its sinful pleasures and activities. James calls those people that do that adulterers and adulteresses. And four and four, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. That's just a fancy way of saying, if you love the world, you're at odds with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And I don't want to be God's enemy. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. Then James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And again, it's your reasonable service, so if he's asking you to do it, it's not unreasonable. And it's something that you can do by the help of the Holy Ghost, but only by the help of the Holy Ghost. Holiness involves both the inner man and the outer man. We must perfect holiness by cleansing ourselves of filthiness, both of the flesh and of the spirit. Would you agree with me that the law was difficult? It would have been difficult to adhere to all 613 commandments of the law. That would have been hard, especially in your flesh. But yet, as hard as that was, there's a law of grace and there's a law of law, right? So we're under the law of grace. Which one would be more difficult? Under the law, you actually had to commit adultery or commit murder to be guilty of it. But under the law of grace, we've got a higher standard. 
Because Jesus said if a man think upon a woman to commit an act of adultery with her, he's committed adultery. And if a man hate his neighbor, he's already murdered him. So you tell me which one's higher. Holiness includes my attitude. It includes my thoughts. It includes spiritual stewardship on one hand, then my actions, my appearance, and physical stewardship on the other. But one without the other is insufficient. Inward holiness will, emphasize that, underline that, will produce outward holiness. But... The outward appearance of holiness is worthless without inward holiness. You can be rotten on the inside. Sleeves as long as you want to wear them. Dot all your I's, cross all your T's, have a long tongue. That's not holy. The outward appearance of holiness is worthless without inward holiness. For example, a modest spirit will produce modest dress. But the modest dress is of little value if it's only concealing a lustful heart. So holiness or our sanctification is not a means of earning salvation. Otherwise, the law would have been plenty. But it wasn't. And so it still is not enough just to be holy. You can't earn salvation by holiness. But don't throw it out because it's a result of salvation. We live this way because we are saved. That's why it's called fruit unto holiness. Holiness comes by grace through faith, just like salvation. Holiness cannot be manufactured by works of the flesh, but it comes as we submit to the leadership and control of the Holy Ghost. And we are holy in a twofold sense. On one hand, we receive immediate sanctification, which means a separation from sin through the death of Christ when we are baptized in his name and filled with his spirit. God counts us holy by imputing Christ's righteousness to us at that moment. But on the other hand, we must follow after, we must seek after holiness to receive the progressive work of sanctification. We are already sanctified, but the word calls us to be saints, which means sanctified, set apart, holy ones. And I'll use the analogy of having newborn babies. That three-month-old, you expect to be able to hold their head up a little bit, drink formula, but otherwise they may roll around a little bit, but they're not going to do much else. By one, they may toddle around a little bit, maybe walk along the edge of the coffee table, still making a mess. But if at five, they're still doing what a one-year-old does, you've got a problem. There's a developmental problem in a five-year-old that acts like a one-year-old. And the same thing with a 10-year-old that acts like a five-year-old. You know, my, my kids are 11 and 5. When Amelia acts like a 5-year-old, it's totally acceptable. But when Genevieve acts like a 5-year-old, that's not acceptable. It's the same way in the spirit. When you're born, God expects you to, 
to stumble around a little bit and make some mess. But when you've been living for God for some years, he doesn't expect you to act like a baby anymore. That's why Paul said, stop drinking milk. I want you to eat some spiritual meat, but you're still cutting teeth and you can't. God is calling people to holiness. He's calling people to mature. He's, you know, act your age, amen? Don't shun this. Here's what does not happen. Holiness does not come automatically as you just rest passively. It doesn't just happen. You don't just learn to walk. You don't just learn to ride a bike. You don't just learn to drive a car. It's, there's a process involved. And somebody helped you along the way. That's why we need discipleship programs. Because some will teach that any attempt to live holy is of the flesh. But they fail to understand that genuine faith always includes obedience and always produces good works. So we must open our lives to the working of God's spirit. And we must actively implement the spiritual principles he places in us. And then it is our job. We must resist the devil. We must subdue the sinful nature. We must discipline the flesh. And we must mortify or kill the deeds of the body. Thus, the Bible teaches us in Romans 6, 11, through 13, it says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Then it says, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Then James 4, 7 through 8 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But if you don't resist him, he won't flee. If every time he comes, you just relent and give in and say, okay, that's fine, I'll do it again. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to come knocking again and again and again because you just keep on letting him in. But if you deadbolt the door and you tell him, I'm not, I'm not opening this door anymore, he's going to stop knocking. Resist him. But then there's the other side. I keep, I'm telling you, there's all of this come out from, go to. Listen to this. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee. Then draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart because you're double-minded. And what does the Bible say about a double-minded person? They're unstable. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 sums it up very well. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So when God gave you the Holy Ghost, he gave you the will to do it and the ability to do it. So our pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between us and God. He provides both the desire and the power or the ability to live righteously while he is at work inside of us. But it's our responsibility to reverently and watchfully implement holiness in our lives. And God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he's given us the responsibility of doing the actual walking. So God's grace is at work in us, 
but we have to work it out. And then even though none of us will absolutely be as perfect or as holy as God is, we can be perfect or mature in a relative sense. Because just as you would expect a two-year-old to act like a two-year-old, a five-year-old, ten-year-old, so on and so forth, God has it that way in the spirit. That when you're two years old in the Holy Ghost and you act like a two-year-old, you can still be perfect. God doesn't say, well, you're two years old. How come you're not driving a car? He knows you're a two-year-old. He's going to expect you to kind of scrape your knee a little bit. But he's going to say, you know what? You're still perfect because you're acting like a two-year-old. You're not acting like a newborn. So we can all be perfect in a relative sense. God will consider us holy if we live a repentant life, if we have faith in Christ, and we live according to the knowledge of his word, and we strive to become progressively more like him. God does expect us to grow continually in grace and knowledge and to bear more and more spiritual fruit. If we don't become progressively more holy and Christ-like in thought, attitude, conduct, and lifestyle, something is wrong. God will evaluate us individually on the basis of where we've come from, what he's given us, and what our ability is. So two Christians can be perfect in God's sight even though they have attained different levels of maturity. It's just as those two children I spoke about at two different stages of life. They're both healthy and they're both normal when they're acting their age. We don't need to judge one another, amen, or compare one with another, but here's what we should do. We should be patient and we should be tolerant of different levels of perfection as people grow. Allow people to grow. Give them room to grow. Don't expect a newborn to come in and get every I dotted and every T crossed. This is what we should do also. We should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. None of us have yet attained the fullness of perfection. Paul wrote this in Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for that mark, for the prize of the upward or the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, therefore let us, this is the New King James, says, as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, and I admonish you with this, to the degree that you've already attained, walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. We must be tolerant of different levels of maturity with respect to practical holiness, even while we are being careful to maintain the level to which we have also attained. We must let God be the judge of others. So in particular, we should take great care not to condemn, intimidate, or offend visitors or new converts. And due to a diversity of backgrounds, some people will require more time than others to develop certain holiness lifestyle convictions.
It is better for a new convert to develop solid scriptural convictions over a period of time than for them to conform immediately to every detail without knowing why. Because what happens is if they leave for whatever reason, they're going to throw all of it away because they didn't understand why. you got to know why. So let's talk about lifestyle convictions. They can be divided into two basic categories. First and foremost, there are clear teachings of Scripture. And these kinds of things should immediately be apparent to anyone that opens the Word of God. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. That should be obvious. In Isaiah 28, Isaiah is talking and he says there's, there's lines and there's precepts. They're here a little and they're there a little. So a line to me is something that you read and it's obvious that I need to implement this in my life. But a precept is an application of a line. Hatred equating to murder would be like a precept. Don't murder is the line. Does that make sense? So there are immediate things, and these things, there's no difference of opinion. You can have your opinion somewhere else, but not here. Not when it's what Scripture says. Your, your opinion needs to align with the Bible. The new convert should begin to obey these things immediately. So other examples would be fornication, lying, drunkenness. Put those things away immediately. But second, there are practical applications of scriptural principles to modern situations. And these are usually understood and implemented gradually as a new convert grows in grace and knowledge or otherwise matures. There can be a legitimate difference of opinion but not principle among Christians as to the details of specific applications. And we should not expect new converts to understand the application of scriptural principles completely and conform immediately, especially if they don't have a strong biblical background. It all comes down to time. Give them time. The world likes to commit abortion and kill babies, but I think in the spiritual realm, we often do the same thing, unfortunately. What we should do is lead them patiently into truth. And then we shouldn't rely upon ourselves, but we should rely upon the Holy Ghost to do the work and rely upon scriptural teaching. And then we ourselves should put forth a Christian example that's worth following. God has already justified them on the basis of their faith, but now they must submit to the working, that progressive work of sanctification. So let's talk about some principles where lifestyle convictions apply to. Everybody say attitude. 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 So as Christians, we got to put away evil attitudes. That includes hatred, wrath, envy, jealousy, covetousness, which is greed, bitterness, malice, pride, prejudice, vengeance, and all kinds of discord, which includes contention, strife, selfish ambition, dissension, clamor, brawling, murmuring, complaining, rebellion, 
and a critical spirit. The essence of true holiness is to produce spiritual fruit. In particular, we can describe holiness in a positive manner as developing and bearing the ninefold fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, you know them. Sometimes maybe we ought to just pray, Lord, prune me so I can produce more fruit. And I'll point out, it's not the fruits of the spirit, it's the fruit, singular, of the spirit. So if, you're not, if, you've, if you've got love but you don't have patience, you don't have the fruit of the spirit. Let us bear fruit, Lord. So as Christians, we must learn to forgive, and that can be hard, amen? We've got to be obedient to authority, to be thankful, and not be easily offended, and not be busybodies in others' lives. Now, in addition to our attitudes, we've got to watch our thoughts. A man is what he thinks, and he becomes what he allows his mind to dwell upon. Christians are to think on true, honest, just, pure, lovely, reputable, virtuous, and praiseworthy things. And then when we have evil thoughts, we got to cast those down and bring them into the obedience of Christ. We got to watch our tongue. We got to avoid tail-bearing, backbiting, slander, sowing discord, because whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Swearing by oath, using the Lord's name in vain, pronouncing curses, reviling, lying, idle words. And here's something I think we often overlook, suggestive, indecent, or obscene speech. And in parentheses, I would have you write jokes. If you tell a bar joke next to your buddy at work, are you any different? I mean, you can be funny and be clean. Don't have to be obscene to be funny. Got to watch the eye. The eye is the gate of the soul, and it is the primary source of input for the mind. So Christians should not read materials that are saturated with vulgarity and sensuality. And because violence, illicit sex, sinfulness, and vanity totally dominate television and movies, we shouldn't watch those things. David said, I'll set no wicked thing before me. We got to talk about our appearance, which includes adornment, dress, and hair. And as we stated earlier, the appearance reflects the inner self, both to God and to man around you, to others. An ungodly appearance promotes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, and it molds both wearer and society in ungodly ways. Just look at the world around you. Important biblical principles in this are modesty, rejection of ornamentation, moderation in cost, distinction between male and female, and separation from worldliness. Thus, Christians should abstain from clothing that immodestly exposes the body. I'm going to keep this as G-rated as possible. There, there's a modesty in public, and there's a modesty in marriage. Amen? Said enough? There, there are certain things that are acceptable in the home that you should not wear in public, and leave it at that. Between a man and a woman, there are certain parts of the body that are obviously okay, but between those two, and that's it. That's the line. 
So we should not immodestly, immodestly expose our body. We shouldn't wear jewelry. We shouldn't wear cosmetics. And this includes makeup, base, foundation, all of that. The way I see it, I do my best not to give my opinion. But when I do, I preface by saying, this is my opinion. My opinion is God made us exactly the way he wanted us. Maybe that's not even my opinion. Maybe that's just truth. God made you exactly like you wanted you. So when you try to change you, you're telling the one that made you, I can make this better. I don't like my hair color the way you gave it to me. I don't, like, I don't like the hair texture that you gave me. I don't like the eye color that you gave me. I don't like the skin color that you gave me. I don't like the... It goes on. So when you try to make your appearance different than what God gave you, in other words, you're telling him, you didn't do this good enough. We can't improve upon his creation. Even your blemishes, Amen. I could wear a wig, I guess. But y'all would really look at me funny if I showed up Sunday with a wig. I mean, let's just face it. Thank you, brother. So I think I've listed it, but we'll, go, we'll keep going. Hair dye. And then, you know, modesty does include costs. So we shouldn't wear things that are very expensive, extravagant, or gaudy. And I'll go so far as to say that modest cost for one is not necessarily modest cost for another. If you make $80,000 a year, expensive to you is not expensive to a millionaire. And so it goes on and it says that in this, to everybody in this room, at least in this room, if you walked out of this room, it might not be so normal, but it's not normal to see a man in a dress. But it should be so abnormal or equally abnormal to see a woman in pants according to scripture. And then again, in this world, it's not abnormal to see long hair on men. So modesty includes, or immodesty rather, includes men that have long hair, and then it also includes women that have short hair. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then any kind of fashion or dress that's carnal in its association, right? Because when Jesus talked about the man that looked upon the woman, he's not the only guilty party. The woman that dressed that way was also guilty. So women, it's your job to cover up, but it's a man's job also not to look. The woman that dresses that way is just as guilty of adultery as the man that looks. We still friends? Because what happens is a woman that dresses provocative and then gets those looks gets offended or gets comments that she doesn't like. But ultimately, the responsibility lays with her and how she chose to dress. If you don't want to be treated that way, don't dress that way. So we, we have to steward, be good stewards of our body. Because when you got the Holy Ghost, your body was not your own. You were bought with a price and your body then became the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so we should not use things that harm or defile the body. And this includes, but it's not limited to intoxication or things that cause addiction, such as alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. We've got to be modest in sexuality. 
The Bible condemns all sexual relations outside of a permanent marriage of a man and a woman. The Bible opposes lustful thoughts and actions. And we've got to have respect for human life. Christians should not participate in violence or taking of human life. And this includes warfare, abortion, and suicide. And I know when you read the Bible, you know, God sent the children of Israel out to war, but that was his form of judgment. Now we should follow peace with all men. That's what the Bible tells us. Amen. Follow peace. If at all costs, you can make peace, make peace. I'm not against defending your home, defending your family. If somebody comes into my house and it's going to be them or me, it's going to be them. But we should respect all human life. And this should be a no-brainer. We should be honest. The Bible rejects all forms of dishonesty and corruption. And this includes lying, stealing, defrauding, refusing to pay debts, extortion, bribery, and cheating. In our fellowship, Christians must not become identified with sinful attitudes or lifestyles. They should not fellowship with so-called Christians who continually indulge in sinful activities. They are not to become yoked with unbelievers, which refers to marriage. And then worldly activities. Christians must maturely regulate music, sports, games, and amusements, carefully avoiding excessive worldly atmospheres and appearances. And there are some amusements that are just inherently worldly, like a casino or a bar or a club, and then even some types of music just more obvious than others. I think we would all do well not to listen to any of the world's music, but some just seems to be more blatant than others. And then, of course, the occult. So let's talk about convictions and culture. And let's talk about how culture should, or how much, rather, should culture affect lifestyle convictions. I'd like to use an illustration. So imagine that horizontal line at the top of the screen. Imagine that's the church's level of morality. Okay, And then if you would, the bottom line of the screen is the world's level of morality. They're obviously different. One's higher than the other. But now imagine at the end of this horizontal line, there's been a descent, kind of a downward trend. And would you agree that, that that's the way the world has gone? They had some level of modesty, but they've pretty much tossed all of that aside, and it's going down really quick. So now should the church, I ask, maintain its level of distance here and descend with it? Or should we, as our job, to maintain the level which we have attained? God doesn't change. So as the world descends, what happens is we maintain that same level, and as they get darker, we get brighter. So the easy answer to how much should culture affect holiness is zero. But let's answer some truths. So God's moral law is unchanging. God's nature does not change. So moral laws based on God's holiness remain invariant in all times, places, cultures, and circumstances. You can't have circumstantial morals. You don't have circumstantial holiness. Amen? Amen. 
So biblical principles are never changing. The Bible is inspired, it's infallible, and it is the authoritative word of God. It is truth, and truth is absolute. It's immutable, which means it doesn't change, it's constant. And God has progressively revealed truth from the Old to the New Testament. And the New Testament does not contradict Old Testament truth, but it unfolds God's will more completely and calls spirit-filled believers to a higher level of perfection in many areas. God had to give his word in a specific cultural setting, but did not thereby endorse all the practices of that culture. So Christians are not bound to follow the culture of biblical time unless it expresses eternal truths endorsed by the Bible. So for example, the Bible often describes arranged marriages, but thank God I got to pick my wife. I don't know who my parents would have picked for me. They probably would have picked her, honestly. I'm just earning points right now. And again, another example would be the multiple wives that were often had. Solomon, wisest man on the earth, debatable, with all of the wives that he had. It's hard to keep one happy. It's just truth. <laughs> no, I'm doing good, brother. I'm doing good. I could read that. We've been married 19 years. Woo! I got that. But let me get back to this. So in the New Testament, especially you can read where, where Paul would relate to them how slave owners were to relate to their slaves. That's not an endorsement of slavery, but it was, was addressing how that relationship should function. That that slave, if that slave, if that slave owner was a Christian, they were to treat that slave like a family member. Does that make sense? So there's not an endorsement of it, but it addressed what was actually going on in the society and the culture at the time. And so it's kind of like when, um, when Moses made a, basically gave them an allowance for divorce. Jesus said, Moses said this, but I never said that. Jesus said the only allotment for a divorce was if, you're, if there was adultery that was committed. But Moses gave them a kind of a plethora of things that if these conditions were met, you can put her, you can write her away, give her a bill of divorcement. But that's not scriptural, but that's just a case. So here's what we must do. To apply a biblical principle to a modern situation, we have to take culture into account. But culture never abolishes the principle. For example... To some degree, modesty is culturally relative. In the 19th century, not that long ago when you think about it, it was improper for a woman to expose any of her leg in public. So Christian women of that day should not have worn a knee-length dress. For the biblical teaching on modesty to have meaning, however, there must be a minimum absolute of modesty. So how can we determine what's actually culturally relative? First, the biblical principle involved will point to a minimum standard regardless of culture. There's something in Isaiah that, that basically says that, I'm going to get this wrong, but in essence what it says is a good way to understand the end is to go to the beginning. And so Genesis being the beginning of the Bible, you can basically find almost any truth in Genesis. 
And so if you go to what God's standard was for Adam and Eve when he made clothing, that should be the minimum standard. Study that. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but go study what God made Adam and Eve. This kitonet, he called it. It's called in Hebrew. So that is what God expects. And well, here we go. All right. We're on God's time, right? So we all know what happened to Adam and Eve when they, trans when they transgressed. Their eyes were open. They saw that they were naked. And I believe they grabbed the first thing they could grab and covered themselves up with fig leaves. Basically, they were in beach attire. But when God came down, what did Adam say? I hid myself because I'm naked. So even in his eyes, covered up with fig leaves, he was still naked. And so God killed an animal and clothed them with skin. He clothed them. No longer were they naked, but covered now. And so when you go to Walmart and they're in fig leaves... They're still naked. They're, they're covered in their eyes, but if God was to ask them, they'd have to admit, I'm naked. Okay. So second, the Bible makes specific applications. If the Bible speaks of something approvingly or neutrally, then it's not wrong under all circumstances. But if the Bible always speaks disapprovingly of something, then it always violates biblical principle. For example, what principles are involved in modesty of dress? Immodest dress promotes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The exposed body tends to arouse improper thoughts in both wearer and onlooker. Culture determines the distinction between male and female dress. Women's pants today violates this principle even though some are designed exclusively for women, but why? Because the Bible says they still pertain to a man. And what that means is it points to a man. They are patterned after the masculine dress style. They promote masculine behavior patterns and they do not distinguish gender clearly in overall appearance, whether by silhouette or by distance. And then what happens is it leaves males without a distinctive dress style. Because as we began, we all agreed that it would be funny if I were to be up here in a dress. Does that make sense? Please don't picture that. <laughs> but there has, there's distinction. Deuteronomy 22 and 5, it says it. That's an abomination to God for a, for a woman to wear a man's garments and for a man to wear a woman's garments. And, you know, let me, let me point something out. So, there, there's something here, this, this word abomination. Okay, that's something that God detests. So here it says, it's an abomination unto the Lord thy God. The other morning, it's like he highlighted something, and he said, there are things that say it's an abomination to you, but here it says it's an abomination to God. And so I went through, and I was looking at different things where it appears different ways. There, there's things that are abominable to him, and then there are things that are abominable to us. Specifically, and more more commonly, I guess, is when it, when it says it's an abomination to you, being us, is in the giving of the ceremonial law, when it came to a lot of the dietary restrictions and, and putting certain crops together and wearing certain types of fabrics together, God says, that's an abomination to you. And those things were nailed to the cross. So dietary restrictions, gone. Clothing restrictions in terms of wearing different fabrics together, like you couldn't wear cotton and linen or wool and cotton or whatever together. They had to be the same type of garment. 
Does that make sense? That was an abomination to the Israelites, but not to God. Those things were done away with. But the things that say they're abomination to him, he doesn't change, remember? So anything that he said was an abomination to him remains an abomination to him. So modern culture accepts makeup and no longer connects it with harlotry. The Bible, however, always links makeup with evil. Moreover, makeup still promotes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, artificiality, and discontentment with nature and false values. And again, tells God you didn't do good enough. Modern culture accepts cut hair on women. But the Bible always links this with shame, unnaturalness, and rejection of authority. Moreover, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16 explicitly teaches that all women, regardless of culture, should have long, uncut hair and that men should have short hair. And I know when anybody talks about 1 Corinthians 11, your mind goes, oh, here we go again, the hair chapter. It's not about hair. When you read the first half of that chapter, there are three things that are prevalent. There's covering, there's glory, and there's angels. The second half of the chapter is about communion and discerning the Lord's body. But this first half is about glory, covering, and angels. It's not about hair. And when you read the scripture, there's only one other place where those three, those three things appear together. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. where there's a covering over this ark. And there's angels whose wings cover this ark. And in these wings of these angels, the glory of God appears. I mean, ladies, that hair. not about hair. It's about covenant. It's about who your God is. And okay. There's a covering over the mercy seat. And there's angels who are above this mercy seat. And their wings cover that place. And it was when the high priest would go behind the veil, the glory of God would descend, it would appear and it would fill that place. Okay, your hair is a beautiful thing. And, and there's a difference between long hair and uncut hair because long is a measuring stick. Long is judgmental. Long can be discerned by, well, Brother Tony, for example, you could look at a woman and say she has long hair and I could think, well, it's not that long. And Sister Lisi, your hair just doesn't grow a lot. And some women are like that. So really what the word is that's for long really means uncut. So, and it means, it really, the literal translation from the Greek is to allow to grow. Without, without hindering the growing of the hair. Because it talks about being shorn or shaven. This is obviously shaven. But shorn, what's that? 
You heard the term shears, right? So if you were to take a piece of this paper and take a set of scissors and just go along the edge and cut the smallest minuscule piece of that paper off of the edge, it's been shorn. So split ends, you cut those off, you're shorn. You may as well just... There, there's one thing. God gave men and women certain unchangeable physical characteristics to distinguish us. But he allowed us to possess one changeable characteristic, our hair. Men can grow their hair long and women can cut their hair short. But by conforming to God's standard, they demonstrate their willingness to accept God's authority. So what Paul does when he says, doesn't nature itself teach you? And, and Paul goes back to the beginning. He goes back to Genesis. He, he goes back to creation. And this distinguishment, this distinction between male and female, Adam and Eve, where Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, but Eve was taken from Adam's rib. And, and, and it's not, sometimes we think, oh man, well, you know, Hopefully not in this room, but I think there are people that read that and think, well, God just thinks men are better than women. And that's not the case. You know, it talks about woman as the weaker vessel. And I mean, you, you can't debate with a man in a, between that a man is stronger than a woman. Amen. Physically, a man's supposed to be stronger than a woman. So she is the weaker vessel, but it's not a bad thing. It's just the way God made you. God made you more sensitive because here's, God help me. It has nothing to do with your intelligence or who's superior over the other, okay? It has to do with the order of creation because God made Adam first. And Adam was the one in the transgression. And so, so Paul reaches back here, but it's not about superiority. It's not about one being better than the other. It's all about the order of creation because when God made humanity, he first made Adam. And it says that Adam, man, was made in the image and likeness of God. But woman was made in the image of man. And so that's why it's saying that, for, that Christ is the head and, man, and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman because that's the order of creation. That's the way God made us. And so, and this, this is, man. So after God made Adam, he made him, the King James says, a help meet. That's a bad translation. Really what it means is he made her, him a helper suitable for him. But the, the Hebrew word is azar. And it's only used for two things. The word azar is only used for God and for Eve. So what he's saying is, I made Adam, but it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And I can't be with Adam all the time. So I made Adam a helper that's like me. So women, you're not weaker. That's why you're a help. You're like God to your husband. Men, when your wife says, hey, I don't really feel like, you know, that. You know, listen, don't just tune her out. Listen. She's trying to help you. God might be trying to help you through your wife. Because sometimes, I know what I'm doing. Just listen. I'm talking to myself. Remember what pastor said when you do this, you got doing i'm feeling that right now so this word this greek word for glory is dosha it expresses the fact that a man 
in his redeemed state reflects the image of God, that woman, on the other hand, is the reflection of man. And when you read Isaiah 6, and Isaiah gets this glimpse of the throne room of heaven, in the year, it says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and, and the train of his robe filled, his, filled the temple, right? And he sees these angels that are worshiping around the throne, again, singing, holy, holy, holy. But it says this about those angels that he saw, that they had six wings. It had two that it flew with. It had two that it covered its feet with. And then two that it covered its head. And that's when it talks about a woman with her head uncovered cannot go into the presence of God. Because man was the only one made in God's image, so man is the only one that can enter God's presence uncovered. Because he's the covering. But those angels have to cover their head to get into God's presence. Just like a woman can only come into God's presence covered. And what's her covering? A hair. If you've ever been in a church that's like us but not like us, they preach oneness but not holiness. There's a vast difference in what you feel in the power of God. When you come into a sanctuary that has women with uncut hair, you're standing on holy ground because you're in alignment with the word of God and there is the covering. And when there's a covering and there's angels and there's glory. And so when you come into this place and there's women that are in covenant with God, the glory of God comes in. But when a woman enters God's presence with her hair cut, what happens is she's removed herself from God's order. However, if a woman is willing to submit to her role, and that's why Paul says, for this cause, it says she will have power on her head. And then he says, because of the angels. Does it make a little more sense now why he says that? Because holy angels veil their faces before God, so a godly woman wears the veil but not a veil like you think, a veil of her hair, which was given for a covering. And these holy angels receive delegated power as they submit to God, but so does the godly woman. These angels were present at creation and say they, they know the order of creation. And so a godly woman's uncut hair is the mark of her authority in the presence of God and in the, angel of, in the world of angels and demons. And Greek scholar Marvin Treese teaches this. He says, when you come into the presence of God, having your hair cut, or you have some idea in your head of changing your image to look like a man in some way, it changes your relationship with God and you have no authority. Both angels and demons, which are fallen angels, recognize spiritual authority and they know when it's not present. So how long is long? think we addressed this, but come or coma are translated long, but actually mean uncut or to let the hair grow. So modern culture accepts jewelry and other forms of outward adornment, for example, makeup. But the Bible gives us clear examples as to how it turns the attention from God to us. It promotes the cult of self. It leads God's people into adult idolatry and was often used as a form of seduction. God's desire is that his people not outwardly adorn themselves as the world does, but God's desire is this. 
1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness. What that means is plain-faced, so no makeup. In sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. And then 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4 says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Both Peter and Paul emphasize this contrast between worldly adorning and Christian adorning. And these passages deserve close attention, not only because they give us fundamental principles of appropriate Christian dress, but also because they provide us with explicit condemnation of the use of jewelry and extravagant apparel. And these two apostles expect women to adorn themselves so long as it's in proper fashion. And God does not condemn natural ornaments. You can take a look at the world around you when spring comes and everything blooms and it's colorful and it's beautiful or fall comes and the leaves turn colors. He didn't make this world drab and dull and colorless and boring. And he didn't make women boring either. You don't have to add that stuff to be beautiful. So these apostles expect women to adorn themselves as long as it's in proper fashion and God does not condemn natural ornaments because he made this world beautiful. God does not expect us to be drab or colorless in appearance, but he does expect to us to have godly adornment. True adornment is that which enables a Christian to express the real self. There must be a consistency between the inward and the outward appearance of a Christian. To pretend to come humbly before God while we are adorned in a way we know he does not like is hypocrisy. And so these verses we read are not actually describing, are actually describing two mutually incompatible lifestyles. Women are taught to put away certain unholy things and possess certain contrasting holy things, just as men are taught to put away wrath and doubting and to possess holy hands. Wrath and doubting are not permissible for men as long as they have holy hands. And the same principle of incompatibility applies to the issues mentioned for women, and that's why Paul writes, in like manner also. One of the most basic reasons God does not want us to adorn ourselves is because we're his jewels. There's no longer a negative connotation associated with jewelry or makeup in our culture, but we're not seeking to please culture. I want to please God rather than man. So God's moral law for us can be summed up in these words, love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. So in essence, Holiness means to imitate Christ, to do what he would do, to be Christ-like. The power to live a holy life is a gift from God, but it's our responsibility to implement holiness on a daily basis. We seek holiness out of a love for God, but not out of a fear for, or legalism. Holiness is an integral part of the salvation of the whole man. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23 says your body, soul, and spirit are to be holy. And so that frees us from the power and the effects of sin. It is a joyful privilege 
It's part of an abundant life, and it is a blessing from the grace of God and a glorious life of freedom and of power. For someone who is filled with the Spirit of God and truly loves God, holiness becomes the normal way to live. Holiness fulfills God's original intention and his design for humanity. Would you stand? I realize that I've probably said some things that maybe you didn't like tonight. But remember that verse we started with. Don't despise me. Go home and examine. Look at the word. Look at yourself. Seek the face of God. Lord, is this something that you really do require of your people? And I, I, if you're listening, he'll affirm it. Trust me. He will. Praise the Lord. Let's raise our hands and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Ghost that you've given us, that you've not called us unto uncleanness, but you've called us to holiness, and that it is the grace of God that works in us to separate ourselves and sanctify ourselves from this world and its ways, to come unto you, Lord, to draw nigh to you by the Holy Ghost that's working inside of us. Thank you, Father, for the gift of that spirit that you've put inside of us, and Lord, help us to follow, help us to be sensitive Help us, Lord, not to despise holiness, but to embrace it. Help us to be pleasing in all of our ways unto you. Thank you, Father, for that grace that appeared to all men that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live soberly, righteously, and godly, even in this present world. You've put your spirit in us to do it, to enable us to do it, Lord, and we want to do that to make you happy, to please you. And, Lord, your commandments, they're not grievous when we love you. We want to serve you and love you out of a pure heart fervently. We want you to order the steps of these people and direct us in the way that we should go, Lord. I pray your blessing. I pray your favor upon us all as we leave from this place. Be with our pastor and refresh them, rejuvenate them on their time away. Lord, guide us and lead us in everything we do physically and spiritually. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name and everybody say amen. 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 Go in the fear of the Lord. You're dismissed. Be back on Sunday.